So uh, we, we approach the Bible this morning with that mindset, that posture that we are desiring to become like children, not people who think we've got it all together or we can do it. Just give me a chance and I'll show you I'm strong enough, I'm wise enough, I'm, I'm good enough. But we become like these children who are dependent, who are humble, who are eager to learn and to receive from the hand of their father. So this morning, keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue, as Clayton said, studying this passage in Matthew chapter 5. It's the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically we're in a passage called the, the, the Beatitudes. And it's, it's this, called the Sermon on the Mount because, well, it's where Jesus is teaching. He's on a hillside teaching in front of his disciples. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, there's a couple of things going on here that I want to draw our attention to. I could have said it last week, but I'm going to say it this week as just kind of a, a way for us to approach the Sermon on the Mount, a way for us to kind of keep in mind, almost like we're putting on these glasses to help us understand what's happening here in the passage. See, first of all, Matthew sets the narrative on a mountain or a hillside. In Luke's gospel, Luke gives a very similar account of the, the sermon that Jesus gives, but in his account, uh, we're told that Jesus was, well, actually, it's called the Sermon on the Plain, but we're told that he, he gives this sermon on, on a level place. So what's going on here? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Are, are two of Jesus' closest followers actually giving an, a, a different account as to what happened? Is there some confusion as to what happened in Jesus' life? No. By no means does the Bible contradict itself. The Bible is not saying that there's two different accounts as to what really happened. The difference is in the language. The difference is in the perspective. And they're written that way for a purpose. See, Matthew wants to communicate something to his listeners. He's, he's emphasizing something so that his readers would understand what Jesus was communicating that day on the side of the hill. The Greek word that Matthew uses for mountain is oros, which uh, in general, it has kind of a, a descriptive term that covers a few different things. It could mean hill, it could mean uh, uh, mountain, it could mean very big mountain. In fact, all of those explanations are used for oros in the Gospel of Matthew alone. He, he uses that word to talk about a very high mountain. In fact, where Jesus is tempted at the top of a very high mountain, right? Or where he's taken to the top of a high mountain to see the land. When, when, when he references other places in the, Bible, or in the Gospel of Matthew, he's talking about a mountain or, or even just a hillside. So hopefully we see that there's some flexibility in how we understand this. Our Bibles may say uh, mountain, but there's some flexibility in understanding what that mountain looks like. In Luke's account, Jesus is actually coming down off of a mountain after praying, and when he reaches a level place, he begins to teach. So maybe it's not a plain in Luke, but, but if you can think about what it looks like for Jesus to come down off this hillside, down off the mountain, and he reaches this level place. Is it a plateau? Is it you know, a lower place on the mountain, like a hillside place where the ground is kind of flattened out a little bit? Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 17 with me. And he came down with them and stood on a level place. 
with a crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So, you know, from Luke's passage, still, if we understand the language correctly, they're in the similar vicinity. It's not necessarily two different places that we don't understand or that, that are in, in conflict, that are different than what he intended. Matthew's account and Luke's account may appear different, but they're not. Again, the only difference for us to glean is the emphasis that these two authors, these two uh, writers, sorry, uh, take on this same account in Jesus' life. So I think the emphasis that Matthew wants his readers to understand is to glimpse, to grab this theme of, of a teacher of Israel on a mountain. As readers of Matthew's gospel account, I believe that they would have remembered this moment in, uh, in Israel's history where they received some significant teaching from the top of a mountain. You may remember the story of Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. I think that this is the story that would have come to mind for them as they're hearing about Matthew retell the story of Jesus teaching on the hillside. I think we need to remember that the Jewish people were waiting. They were watching and waiting for another leader like Moses that was being promised by God to come and, and to lead them. Moses led the people of Israel out of exile, out of slavery in Egypt. This prophet that would come like Moses would be another leader that they hoped in who would lead them and lead them out of their their, their exile, the, the slavery, the, the persecution that they lived under, under Roman rule. Shortly before Moses died in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses told the people of Israel this. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you should listen. For Matthew's readers, as they hear Jesus' sermon I can't help but think that they, were make, that they would make a connection between this promise of God in Deuteronomy, this promise that he gave through Moses that he would send another prophet like him, that God would send another prophet like Moses, and it would be one that they should listen to. And so as they're sitting there on the hillside and, and, and they're seeing Jesus teaching, he sits down before them and begins to teach as one with authority, they would think, man, this is, this is someone we got to listen to. He's got some things to say. Let's give him our ear. Let's give him our hearts. Let's give him our mind. He's got something significant to share with us. So this morning, I want to challenge us. Not just this morning, but in the next six weeks beyond today, we should listen closely to what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, I, I know as, as a pastor, I'm always telling us to listen to Jesus, right? But I hope that we can take the time to tune in a little bit closer, to think a little bit more deeply about what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage in Matthew. See, being a Christian is what Jesus is talking about. To think about what it means to be a child of God, to, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a citizen of God's kingdom is what Jesus is teaching us here in these passages. And so we want to listen in to him, to understand from his perspective what it means to be a child of God, not from maybe even what we traditionally believed was the way that we are supposed to be a Christian, but to listen to Jesus himself, to listen to the source to let him speak to our hearts and minds, to let him shape our lives as citizens of his kingdom.
See, I think being a Christian is not determined by your politics, by who you vote for. Being a Christian is not determined by, by how good you are. Christianity is about a citizenship. Are you first and foremost a, a citizen of this earthly kingdom? Do you, do you see a priority of what we're doing here on this earth as being most important? Or do you consider yourself a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? A, a kingdom which is here, but not here in its totality. A, a kingdom which we are living for even though we live in a foreign land. A kingdom where we recognize who our king is and we allow him to have rule and reign over our lives even while we live in a foreign land. Christianity is about citizenship. So I think what we remember from last week is that citizens of the kingdom of heaven acknowledge their brokenness. This is not some worm theology where we think we're just we're worse than the worms in the dirt, that we're, we're horrible people. No, we recognize our need for God in our lives. We know we can't walk the way that Jesus laid out before us without his help, without his guidance, without his authority over our hearts and our minds and our lives. We acknowledge our, uh, the poverty of our spirit and our need for God working in our inmost being, right? And citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they embrace grieving and lamenting and mourning. Why? Because they're certain of God's promises. They're certain that God has a plan and that his promises are true. And so when he promises to be our comfort and to comfort his people, we're confident in that, even in the midst of mourning. And so it's the second beatitude that we're going to focus on together this morning. Okay, so as we do, as we start off, I think it's appropriate to play a game, right? I mean, come on. If we're going to, if we're going to start this morning saying that we need to have faith like a child, we're going to play a little game together. And so, you know, at home, you, you have, uh, or actually, the people here in the room have a distinct advantage, but you can still play along at home. You just need to shout louder, okay? So, so here's how we're going to play this. We're going to play a little word association game, all right? And I expect, I don't always give you permission to talk back to me, but I expect you to talk back to me in the next minute while we play this game, okay? So I'm going to say a word, and then you shout out the word that, that comes to mind when you hear this, okay? So let's see, let's, let's see how we do. I'll, do. I'll do a trial run. I'll put one word out there. All right. Hot dog. Buns, ketchup, hamburger. Good, good. <laughs> Milk? Okay, brown. Brown, good. The color. I'm colorblind, so I didn't know what that hot dogs are brown, but now I do. Oh, you saw it brown. Okay, good. Hey, it still works. That's what's so beautiful about word association games. I get to know what's going on in your mind, even as you're staring at me. You're thinking about your lunch. No, just kidding. All right, next word. Snow. <laughs> White, frozen, what else? Let's, okay, good, good. Yeah, there's lots of answers. Snowflakes, good, yeah. Okay, how about this? Tom Brady. Football champion, good, I like this. <laughs> we're going to stop at the beginning. <laughs> we're just, okay, we're done, we're done with that round. Okay, how about this? What do you associate with this word? Morning. 
New day. Morning dove. Morning dove. All right. I, I heard a lot of good suggestions, a lot of good word associations. But I'm, did I hear happy in there? I don't think I heard that. I don't think I heard happy uh, in, in that word association. If I did, see me afterwards, I'll give you a gold star. Right? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed is a funny word to, to kind of associate with mourning, right? And by mourning, I'm not talking about what we're in right now with, with uh, the sun rising and, and waking up, having our cup of coffee. Uh, we're talking about this deep-seated emotion that goes on within you when there, you experience loss and, and disappointment and, and regret. I don't know too many people in this world who would say, man, the last time I mourned the loss of this, man, I was so happy. I mean, happy is the word that I would use to describe how I was feeling. But happy, in the strictest of senses, is how we're told to translate blessed. But I don't think blessed, I think if we were to say happy is the person who is mourning, I don't think we would actually be getting at the meaning that, that Jesus is declaring here in the Beatitudes of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He uses this word makarios, which, which can mean happy, but it also can be a description of a, of a status, right? I mean, how many of you have driven down the road and you're driving behind a car that has a spare wheel on the back and it says, life is good on the, on the cover of the, the car? Or they're wearing a, a t-shirt that says, life is good. There's a company and their mission is to encourage people to think about the positive things of life. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a, a religious company, but they care about encouraging people to think about the positive side of things, to, to focus on, on life being good. Right? And I don't think that they're trying to get at a, a, a feeling there, but to cultivate positive thinking, positive uh, um, motivations for, for doing things. But, but what Jesus is getting at is more than just feeling happy, more than just making your mind think about the positive things about life, Jesus is characterizing the life of a citizen of heaven. In other words, it's, it's a declaration about the lives of those who are citizens of heaven and not citizens of this earth. One way we might relate to Makarios in today's language is with, you know, a hashtag. Hashtag blessed, right? How many times have you seen a, 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 a post that someone puts up on social media when, when it's this, you know, picture of them with their family and says hashtag blessed? But you know what? Here's the thing. Not everything going on in their life in that moment is very good. They're choosing to acknowledge that their life is good even in the midst of some trying and difficult times. Maybe it's they love their spouse, or they love their kids, or they, they love what they do, or they love their pastor. Uh, you like how I slipped that one in there? Yeah, good. Hashtag blessed, right? For a pastor, one of the many great things that we get to do is when we come alongside a family and, and get to dedicate a child, to, to come alongside a family and, and encourage them as they dedicate themselves as parents to raising their children and the fear and the admonition of the Lord, to, to following Jesus. 
Or, or another great moment in being a pastor is when you get to celebrate someone's baptism, when you get to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and celebrate the transformation that God is doing within them. The next time I do this, next time I dedicate a child or, or, or perform a baptism, I'm going to take a selfie right there in the tub so I can post it online later on and say, hashtag bless. You know, not every part of a pastor's job is awesome, but there are moments that you want to look at and say, man, life is good. I get to do this, Right? I think this idea of, uh, of hashtag blessed is a reminder that regardless of what's going on in our lives, regardless of the, the current circumstances of our lives, we have reason to acknowledge that we are blessed. Now, it's, I, I know we as Christians can also do this. When everything's going wrong in our lives, we say, yeah, I'm, I'm blessed. You know, at least I'm blessed, Right? Almost like to do away with the pain and the, the heartache and the, 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 the frustration and, and just kind of like write it off. Say, oh, I'm blessed, right? I don't think Jesus is calling us to do that. I don't think he wants us to ignore or to sweep under the rug the pain that we have to deal with, the mourning we have to confront in our lives. But, but I think that there is an encouragement to consider what is our life as citizens of heaven— in contrast to the temporary circumstances we find ourselves living in in this world. See, I think followers of Jesus are blessed when they mourn, not because it feels good to mourn, not because we should tell ourselves, man, I should be happy right now. Why am I not happy that I've got reason to mourn this morning? No, they're, they're blessed because the end of our story is still being written. And at the same time, the end of our story has been written. And it is one where we are assured of the comfort that's laid out before us. Though we mourn right now, we're promised that God will get the last word. In Revelations chapter 7, verse 17, we're given a picture of what the future will be for us when Jesus returns. When the fullness of his kingdom breaks into this world. Right now, we've got a taste of the kingdom of heaven. It's here, and we have a taste of it in Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. But when Jesus does what he's promised to do and returns, we have a different picture of what that future looks like. In verse 17, John tells us, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is a time coming when Jesus will be our comfort in totality. When we can look ahead and not be scared of what tomorrow brings, what, what frustrations, what disturbances, what pains tomorrow brings, but we will be assured of that comfort. We will be living in that comfort both now and tomorrow because we are confident of God's kingdom winning the day. See, I think that there is a contrast between the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of this earth, and the kingdom of heaven. If we're living in the king, according to the kingdom of this earth, then that means we've somehow turned away from the kingdom of heaven. We, don't, we actually don't think, we don't believe that the kingdom of heaven has sway over our lives, that Jesus is king. 
And, and there are people that hold many different views in this world as to who we are, where we've come from, where we're going. Clayton and I talked about this past week on the podcast. We're, we're, the, we're discussing some big worldview questions. This past week, we asked, where do we come from? And there are a few different views on what this is. Here's the thing. If you don't believe that there's a God, if you don't believe that, that there's a king that, that created you, that reigns and rules over your life, that has a future for you, then the question is, what is your hope in? What, is, what does the future look like for you? There, there are worldviews that say that, that your future is up to chance. Your future is what you make it. The future is dependent upon your own strength, your own abilities. And in that place for me, as I look at my own life, I would feel hopeless because I've seen what I can do with my own life when I'm left to do it on my own. It's not, not very encouraging for me. Is it for you? I think we have to understand that the kingdom of this earth offers us many things. It's like we're standing there with Satan when Jesus was tempted, and it's not Jesus being tempted, it's us. He's saying, hey, I can give you all of this before you, and we believe him, that the world is our oyster, that we can have whatever we want if we just determine to do it, if we just set about doing it. Those are the values of the kingdom of earth, that you can... You can build for yourself whatever kind of kingdom you want. It's all based on, on your own beliefs. But, but the kingdom of heaven is a little bit different. I think the kingdom of heaven actually offers us hope because that hope is not dependent on me. That hope is dependent upon the one who we give credit for creating this world. Right? As Christians, our, our hope, our, our citizens of heaven, our hope is in a better future. And so what does that mean for our mourning? Well, for those who, of us who live according to the worldview that values as its highest priority the, value, the, the kingdom of this earth, well, mourning is meaningless. What purpose does mourning mean other than to say that you failed or, or you've lost something. It serves no greater purpose be, than beyond the pain and the sadness of the present moment of mourning. But for those of us whose hope is in the kingdom of God, our mourning serves great purpose. Our mourning has its value and its identity in the fact that God's not done. He's continuing to do a work in our lives in the midst of the morning, shaping us and molding us because we know that the moment, the, the morning that we're experiencing, the present moment is not the end. It's not the totality of our story. The totality of our story is in the comfort we receive as we trust in Him, as we rely upon Him, as we, as we have the confidence to say that our future is in his hands. Now, as I mentioned, mourning carries with it a wide range of meaning, doesn't it? When we regret our past, we mourn the fact that our past is not what we had wanted it to be, and that we can't change our past. I regret wearing pants that flared out at my boots when I was in middle school, right? 
I regret growing my hair out in high school. It, I, I didn't have the kind of, well, obviously I didn't have the kind of haircut you could do that with, but, but, it, but it would literally lay flat on top of my head and flare out like a Harrier jet was taking off the top of my head. I regret those moments. I don't know why I didn't make a better decision. I mourn these past decisions, right? I told my boys growing up quite a bit, I regret not playing high school football. I was, I was afraid to do all the running that you, you hear. Like they used to say you'd have to run so much you throw up. I'm like, no, I'm out, right? But now I regret it. I, I mourn what my childhood could have been if I had just faced those fears. When we experience loss of something, we mourn. We, we mourn when someone close to us dies. That's probably the most familiar place that we can relate to when we talk about mourning. Mourning the loss of a loved one, Right? We mourn when our hopes and dreams don't turn out the way we thought they would. When we're so sure that this is what my future looks like and it doesn't turn out that way, we mourn. We mourn the, the current state of our lives. We, we mourn broken relationships. We, we mourn failed careers. And again, I think from a worldly perspective, when things don't turn out the way you would think, where's your hope? Do you have any hope at that point? I don't know where hope lies in those situations if all you think is this life and then it's over. But if our hope is in the kingdom of heaven, then we're blessed because it means this is not the end. Though, though we can't see beyond our current circumstances, though we can't see beyond our current mourning, we are assured of the future that God has in store for us, whatever it may look like, and it's blessed. Because as, his, as our Creator, He holds us in that place of promise where we will be comforted in His arms. We mourn many things, but, but more than feeling sorrow over our losses or, or, or re- regret for our past decisions, I think the, the mourning that Jesus has in view here is more of a mourning of our current state, the, the, the current state of our soul. Mourning the, 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 the sin and the evil and the violence that characterizes our world. In fact, it's a little bit of a biblical theme here. In Psalm 119, verse 136, the psalmist writes, my, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The psalmist mourns the fact that it's not the kingdom's rule and reign that, that describes this land, but a different reign and rule. That, that the people don't keep God's law, instead they keep another law. He, he weeps. In Romans chapter 7, Paul, who's the man credited with writing much of the, or writing down most of the New Testament, writes this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul, someone who we look to to teach us about God, theology, the church, all these things. He, he, he mourns the sin which he sees in his own flesh. He, he mourns the, the sin that he sees all around him. The type of mourning that characterizes Jesus' followers is one where, where we deeply grieve and confess the world is not how it should be. I mean, the American dream is alive and real. We all, whether we say it or not, 
dream of having, you know, a comfortable home, a, a, a white picket fence, you know, a healthy family, a happy family. We, we dream of having a beautiful retirement package. All these things, and by the way, none of them are wrong to, to like and to enjoy if God blesses you with them. But to set that as your priority, to say this is what is most, imp- this, is, this is how I'm driving my life toward, is driving your life toward an earthly kingdom rather than driving your life upward toward a heavenly kingdom. See, the evil and greed and violence that characterize this world is not the way God created it to be. The sickness, the death, the, the, the plagues, the, the hunger, it's not, not supposed to be here. You know, we see good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, and we say, why? How is this possible? But our, our grief and our mourning isn't just for what we see out there in the world. Like Paul, we, we grieve over the sin and evil we come face to face with within our own hearts. So I think we need to be honest with ourselves. I think we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to be honest with one another. Pride, arrogance, greed, selfishness, hard-heartedness, That evil that's out there in the world runs through my own heart as well. As Christians, we are thankful for grace and forgiveness. But somehow we think that once we've received God's grace and forgiveness, that we've become someone who can't relate to the the anger and the pride and the selfishness that runs rampant through this world. We, we prefer to point to the sin and the evil that's out there in the world. We're quick to point out how we feel wronged by other people and, and we're slow to acknowledge how we offend others. See, every day we have the potential in this world. We have potential to, to either further the agenda of evil in this world or to further the agenda of God's kingdom in this world. One of those two things is happening every day in your life. Chuck Colson once said, we are either contributing to the broken condition of the world or we're participating with God in transforming the world to reflect his righteousness. But if you don't think there's anything wrong with this world, if you think that this world holds potential to comfort you, to satisfy your soul, to, 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 to make you happy, if you don't believe that you've been created for something better than this, then the path you're on is one of apathy. You'll take the path of not being bothered by sin and and selfishness and greed. You're not going to be bothered by the violence around you. And maybe worse, the sin and selfishness and greed and violence, that's within you. Actually, no, that's wrong. You will be bothered by those things. But you don't know why you're bothered by them. And you won't know how to deal with them. Without the kingdom of God, we don't have the tools to understand why this evil is wrong, where this evil resides, and how to deal with the evil we see in this world. 
Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they know that God's kingdom is so much better than the kingdom of this world. And they long for Jesus' full reign and rule over not just their own lives, but their community, their country, the world. See, the blessing of of Jesus' followers who mourn is found in the object of their comfort, the king. Shortly after Jesus returned from fasting in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, he stands up in a synagogue. And he takes the scroll, the word of God, and he unrolls it, and it's in Isaiah, and he reads this passage declaring what he has come to do, declaring that the promise of God is being fulfilled in their presence. In other words, Jesus is declaring, I am the fulfillment of God's promise. You want to hear what the promise was? In in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, Jesus reads these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. This is the promise of God that Jesus has come to fulfill. He has fulfilled it and He will fulfill it when He returns. Jesus, the one who stood in that synagogue and said, this word has been fulfilled in your presence, has said the comfort of God has come. The comfort that this world can't offer, the comfort that the world lies to us and wants us to believe that if they just keep trying a little bit harder, give it a little bit more more money, give it a little bit more energy, a little bit more time, you'll find that comfort that you long for. It's a lie. The comfort we long for is found in Jesus and Him alone, the King of God's kingdom. The King has come to comfort all who mourn. And not just to comfort us, but to give us a beautiful headdress. To give us an oil of gladness. To give us a garment of praise. To plant us that we might be called oaks of righteousness. To firmly and strongly plant us in the kingdom of heaven. Where there's no question of our security. There's no question of our future. There's no question that the mourning that we experience, the the grieving over the sin and the evil of this world is not the end of the story. Jesus has come to comfort all who mourn. How? By undoing the curse of sin. Through taking upon Himself the penalty of the world of sin. By taking upon Himself the penalty for which we're mourning. By being hung on a cross, a cross of wood, a tree, uh, something that would have identified him as a cursed man. He became our curse that we might become oaks of righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who look at this world and see it for what it is. Broken. 
a world that will not satisfy, who instead long for the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, who long for eternity where they will be comforted. In Isaiah chapter 40, God gives us another promise. He says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. See, God gets the last word, doesn't he? And that last word is comfort. Comfort for you and for me as we trust in Jesus to be our king, to have a reign over our lives. So I think that the earthly kingdom uh, says it offers us hope, but that hope never will come. Those of us who think that there is no God, who walk thinking that this life is all there is, what's your hope beyond this world? What's your hope that the, the circumstances of this world will change? Your hope is only in yourself, in what change you can affect. One thing I've learned from this past year is that humanity apart from God is not something to be trusted in. There have been many disappointments along the way. But those places where Jesus has broken in and done a work in people's lives, and done a work in our community, and done a work in our world, gives me great hope that he is not done. And that the future is in his hands. Life is good because the sad state of this world is not the end of our story. Yeah, there's glimpses of hope. There's glimpses of happy moments. There's reasons for us to say, hashtag blessed. We got a happy family. We got a, you know, we've had a good year, done this or done that. There's reason to be happy about those things. But if we don't live thinking about eternity, if we live only for this world, then we're missing out on the blessing of God, the blessing of being a citizen of heaven. Day by day, as citizens of God's kingdom, we, we value acknowledging our brokenness. We value our need of a Savior. And we value seeing this world for what it is and longing for God's kingdom to come. So we choose to live with an eternal perspective. We, we choose to live recognizing that our time on this earth is only temporary. And that's not a bad thing. Because we've been created for more than this. God created these people not wanting any of us to die, but for all of us to come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He wants each and every one of us, and I say us, this world, to return to him in repentance. And so we choose to live with that eternal perspective, focused on him, with our hearts trusting in him. He teaches us to number our days on this earth and to long for eternity 
even while we yet mourn the sin that characterizes this world, even while we are mourning this world, we can recognize our blessedness because he is our comfort. And as we've been getting into the habit of doing at the end of our time in God's word and our worship, I want to give us space to let God's spirit work in our hearts and our minds, to let some of these things that we've been talking about settle down a little bit. I know sometimes when you come to, uh, to a, a service and you hear a sermon preached, uh, there's a lot going on, and our minds can process only so much. And so we want to give you uh, some time in the space of worship to spend time with Jesus. Maybe you want to pray with him. Maybe you just want to sit and acknowledge his presence with you. Maybe you have questions for God. Maybe you don't quite have a relationship with him yet, but you have questions for God that you'd like to, well, I'll challenge you. Put those questions before God. Let him answer the things that are on your heart and your mind. Give voice to those things before God. Speak them out. Keep them in your mind. But spend this time. Let God wash over you the things, the truths, the promises that he desires to say to you. So I want to take a, a few minutes with Jesus. I'm not asking you to ask Jesus to make you more remorseful, to make you feel bad about yourself or the sin that's in your life. I want you to just spend time with God. Invite him maybe to shape your perspective, to give you eyes that long for eternity. In Psalm 90, verse 12, we're going to put it up on the screen. The psalmist says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to view this world through its temporary lens and teach us to view eternity for what it is. A place where God promises comfort. Comfort, my people. Let's pray.